Hey there, friends. Welcome back to the third season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast. If you haven't already done it, go ahead and click that subscribe button. We hope that you'll check us out also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok and find out more about content. Of course, we encourage you to also check out the website at rayreynoldsrap.com. We hope you enjoy today's program. For our third season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast, we've decided to do a couple of things that will help in you strengthening your own personal walk with God. And so uh, one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to be very intentional in the way we present the gospel message. Uh, And we're hoping that through some of these lessons that you will have a desire to grow more spiritually. Uh, And to help us with that, we are going to deal with some tough questions. Uh, In some broadcasts, you'll hear me talking about subjects that maybe even your preacher or uh, Bible class teacher is afraid to, to discuss because of the basically the sensitiveness of that particular lesson. And the second thing that we're doing is we are encouraging people to read their Bible all the way through. And so to help us with that, we are doing surveys of New Testament books. Some of the lessons will be one lesson. Some of them will be uh, two or three or four lessons, depending on the size of the book and the contents. But right now, we want to present to you one of those lessons on a New Testament book. I encourage you to grab your Bible and study along. If you got a notepad, piece of paper, highlighter, that'll probably help as you begin to make notes and think about uh, how you want to read this book from cover to cover. And I hope that it's a blessing to you. This week, we come to the book of James. Now, James claims to be written by James, a servant of God or a bondservant of God, depending on your translation, of the Lord Jesus Christ in the very first verse. Now, the name James is an English form of the name Jacob. And there are at least four men called James in the New Testament. One of those four is James, the Lord's brother. He's the best candidate for authorship, and he's accredited with this book by most early church scholars. Uh, We learn a little bit about him in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13 and verse 55, when he was doubting whether or not Jesus was the Christ, or at least he had some hesitation about Jesus Jesus taking that title. Um, And so we also see that in Mark, chapter 6 and verse 3. And so, therefore, I think it's important as we start to note that James was an unbeliever during the Lord's ministry. Um, I think about John 7 and verse 5, and there's a couple other places that show that um, James, along with the other brothers of Jesus, hesitated to endorse him in his public ministry. But it is shortly after the resurrection that the Lord comes to James personally. Now, we read a little bit more about this in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 7, but it's evident from Acts 1, 14 and Acts 2 and verse 4 that James completely turned the corner and was a wholehearted, all-in believer in his brother, his half-brother, Jesus being the Messiah. And it certainly helps his case because the resurrection, when Jesus appears to James, and James is a doubter, that he steps forward now and says, I have seen him and I believe. And he's among many that uh, Jesus appeared to individually, in addition to several other brethren that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. So James becomes this great leader in the church in Jerusalem. And as I said, he was a doubter. He was hesitant. 
but now he's all in. He is working. He is serving. He is helping. And even with the miracles that are being performed around the area, he's watching over those events. And he becomes a very influential member of the church in Jerusalem. He's called a pillar of the church by Paul in Galatians 2.9. But it seems that maybe he shared a role as an elder, much like Peter did when he uh, is mentioned to be a Peter, uh, a be an elder in, in 1 Peter, in his book, in chapter 5. And also, uh, it seems very uh, evident from Acts 12 and verse 17, and chapter 15, 13, 21, 18, and again, the book of Galatians, that James and Peter worked hand-in-hand in uh, working with the church there in that region uh, in Jerusalem. And so according to tradition, of course, uh, James was put to death by the Jewish high priest in Jerusalem in 62 AD. Uh, Some uh, historians, and in fact, this is uh, credited to Fox's Book of Martyrs, that he was taken up to the pinnacle of the temple, probably the exact same point where Jesus was tempted. And he was thrown off of the temple Uh, And then he he did not die. So he was then beaten to death in the street. So it's just a terrible, tragic way for James to die. But it shows his uh, strength and his faith in believing that Jesus absolutely is the Christ. In uh, 323 AD, I believe it was, it was listed as one of the disputed books of the Bible. And so around the 300s, there are a few people that tried to kick it out of the Bible, and there's a reason why that is. In fact, uh, the Romans also has been kind of hailed as a question mark in latter years because people do not like uh, the content of it, and I think that is terrible. Um, James, in fact, Martin Luther had an issue with James because he believes that, you know, you're saved by faith, not by works, and James says, oh no, (laughs) you're saved by your works too, and so we'll get to that in just a minute. But it's generally accepted that it was written somewhere around the late 40s, early 50s. We really don't have a clue, uh, but but some put it in that frame of mind. I, I probably would say it's one of the earlier books that we have in our New Testament. It's probably written about the same time Paul's writing First uh, Thessalonians. You know, it's it's in that same same time frame. It's an early book, an early letter, and it holds a lot of weight because it comes from Jesus's brother. And it's interesting here, the second book of these general epistles, and we'll get to the last book of the general epistles, are both written by two of Jesus' brothers. Um, there are a lot of scholars also that uh, say that James would have written this just before his death, uh, and maybe even that he was writing because Paul's writings were becoming influential and his preaching and teaching is becoming influential. So he's kind of adding to the conversation. Here are some additional things the church needs to do. But he is up there with uh, John and Peter and Paul as one of those great leaders of the early church. And he makes it clear that his voice needs to be heard and there are some teachings that need to be addressed. Now, I want to recognize also that he's called a bondservant. He's called a servant of Christ. He does not start off by saying, hey, I'm Jesus' brother. You should hear what I have to say. But we know, we know that he is respected and loved and admired by the church. And he says, I may be just another voice, but I have something I'd like to tell uh, the church, the church family, specifically those that are dispersed or of the dispersion. And so the theme, the reason why I like James so much is the theme is about common sense Christianity. It's about practical Christianity. He wants Christians to see that our faith isn't merely a series of religious steps, but uh, how our faith compels us 
to do good works. Faith has to be living and active. And, and some people say, well, that's conflicting with Paul's thoughts on grace. No, it's not. Of course not. Paul teaches on grace, but remember, he's the first to introduce us to the idea of the fruit of the Spirit, planting and watering seeds, growing in Christ. Also, that our work alone cannot save us, but that they bring us help uh, to, uh, to aid us. The Holy Spirit helps us and aids us to give glory to the Father as Jesus intended. And that means that we are living and active in our faith. As James says, show me your faith. I'll show you works by my faith. So it's, it's got a pastoral flavor to it. Uh, it's very much like First and Second Timothy and Titus. He's an elder of the church. He's a protege to Peter. He's the brother of Jesus. Uh, he's got a lot of great power to wield to the church. But instead of pushing doctrine or tradition, he just wants to encourage and challenge people to really think like Christ. And because of that... He introduces many different teachings from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, James 1.2, James 1.4, James 1.5, verse 20, verse 22. All references to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, James 2.10, uh, verse 13 and 18. Again, same thing. James 4.4 4 and 4.10, 4.11. Again, going back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And then in the last chapter, in verse 2 and a little bit after that, verse 10, verse 12, he's again reintroducing that Jesus' sermon from the Sermon on the Mount is essential for understanding practical Christianity. Now, no, the Lord does not talk about the church. He does not talk about the steps of salvation in his uh, speech at the Mount, but he does give practical application. And so, as James is writing to these dispersed people, the people that have left Jerusalem because of persecution, those are the tribes of Israel that are all spread about. He, he's, he's telling them, you need to stay true to Christ. You need to stay true to the gospel. And in doing that, you need to see that you're the true Israel. And that, that kind of parallels Paul's writings in Galatians 6.16. Uh, the idea that you are of the true circumcision. Philippians 3.3, 3, and the true seed of Abraham, which not only is uh, Paul teaching Galatians 3.19, but also in Romans 4 and verse 16. It's not surprising that a lot of Christians would have left Palestine because of persecution and were still trying to find their place. Uh, Antioch starts as a church. Many other churches also in the New Testament started because after Pentecost, people began to persecute Christians. They wanted to know where they belonged and that gets even more difficult up into the 60s and the 70s when Jerusalem is besieged, is, is sacked, and then obviously uh, the Jews begin to flee as well. That kind of brings us to this very first chapter here in uh, James where he begins to talk about the perspective we need and he says that we need to count it joy when we face trials and temptations. That's an important aspect is that we're there to, to be lifted up and to be given strength, even if we're in the middle of something difficult. And that's really hard to swallow. Uh, in fact, when I teach this book, and, and I've taught it many, many times over the years, I say James is uh, real quick, you know, punch him, you know, comes out hitting as soon as he starts. I mean, just listen to some of the thoughts that he says. Uh, there in verse 2, he's saying, you know, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. The testing of your faith produces patience. He says also, patience has its good work. It's perfect work, perfect and complete. You're supposed to be lacking nothing. So if you want wisdom, you better ask of God, uh, and, and he'll give to you liberally without reproach. So these are 
these are really tough words, and he comes out punching. I mean, he comes out with some really, really good stuff that we begin to look at and go, wow, he, he's ready to talk, and we better be ready to listen. And James himself had gotten himself ready. And then he says, if any of you lack wisdom, you need to talk to God about it. Let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And it says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. This is the same illustration that Paul will use in his letters, and specifically in Ephesians, is don't be like this, this ship that's just tossed on the ocean. Make sure you get some control. Now, he's going to talk about that same analogy in chapter 3 with uh, the idea of the rudder on a ship. But being in control as much as you can with your faith and knowing God will be with you, don't be tossed about. Don't, don't be wishy-washy. You're either on the Lord's side or you're not. There is no middle ground. And that is a, a strong way to start a book. That's why we need to preach more of James, to recognize his thoughts. And he says, let not a man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. If he's double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So you need to count on the fact that your faith, if it's strong, God will hear you. And you need to ask for things in faith. You need to ask God, believing that you'll receive now, we hear that also from Jesus. Jesus says very similar things in his teaching, that we need to ask God for what we want, what we need, and wait for his supply, wait for his answer. And so he says, don't be double-minded, don't be unstable, don't be wishy-washy, either you believe it or you don't. And again, we're, we're seven verses, eight verses in. That's pretty intense. Uh, and then he's going to say also some things about the individuals in their congregation. Now, let me kind of help set this up, and then we'll take some thoughts and questions on this too, is they had an issue in the church where James was attending, or at least the, some of the brethren that he's writing to, that they would have individuals come into the church that wanted everyone to know that they were more valuable, more rich, uh, more giving, more abundant in their resources than anyone else. And James is going to try to clarify in these two chapters that, that a person practicing such behavior is setting up a standard by which we would have to show favoritism. And he's telling the church, starting early on, that we should not ever show favoritism to certain people. Now, what your version of favoritism is, what your thoughts about favoritism might be, it might be different from somebody else. Like, for instance, I'll give an example of working in a church where we had uh, the pews that we were putting into our congregation. They, the elders said it would be great if we could get some people to help donate money for the pews. And of course, people love to do that because then they could claim it. Sorry, that was a joke. Um, but they would put their name on the pew, okay? And so they would come in and they'd say, I want this pew, I'll get $500, and they'd put a little plaque on it. Well, we did that, and every single pew had a plaque. People paid. Some of them went in two families, and they did one plaque on one side, one plaque on the other side. But it says this pew was donated by so-and-so. Now, you've seen that before, right? Seen churches do that? I've seen songbooks that have done that. In fact, there's a songbook at uh, North Broad Street in Albertville that has my name in it because I donated it in memory of somebody, and I can't remember who it was. And I had, they had people say, we donate this one to, in the name of Ray Reynolds. So there's one in there that's got my name in that one. But it's just kind of a neat thing to do. Well, we had a man come visiting the congregation, and he was just as pale-faced as he could be, and he looked at me, and he said, I won't be back here. And I said, okay, why is that? And he said, because I see what it takes to be recognized in this church. 
I said, what are you talking about? And he said, oh, I see those plaques. That's the people that gave all the money, and you're elevating them above other people. That's showing favoritism. And he turned around and walked out. And I don't remember who was standing next to me, and I said, boy, that was a joyful and delightful conversation. This guy was so arrogant that he believed that we did it because we wanted to make sure people knew who the rich members were. That's what he saw as favoritism. I did not see that as favoritism. I saw that as giving honor where honor is due, where respect is to be given. But some people have different views. So James says, here is my thoughts on favoritism. And one of the reasons why this is probably a passionate subject for James is because in the book of Acts, chapter 6, early on in the church of Jerusalem, which James is a member and later an elder, they needed people to wait on tables. Do you remember who they were trying to help? Who? Widows. The widows were not receiving their portion. And so James now is going to address that something he sees the whole church needing to do is to take note of widows. So he's passionate about it in Jerusalem, and he takes it to the whole brotherhood. Here's some things we need to work on. One of them is to know that real religion, pure religion, is taking care of the widows. You don't leave them uh, without some help. And so he gives a nice little plug here, and it goes on into chapter 2. But that verse 27 is one of the most powerful verses. Uh, and he's identifying not just widows, he also talks about orphans, but those that are helpless that cannot help themselves. And these are people who, just to speak quite frankly, people in the church at that time looked down upon that they did not want to help. They saw them as poor, they saw them as needy, they saw them as, as individuals who were basically a burden to the church. And James clarifies very quickly that that's not the case, that they are present for us to be able to do ministry. They are there because we are supposed to help. And that takes a different view of it than the way they looked at it. So that's why he says, don't try to elevate certain people. You, know, you put the widows and the orphans down here in this little, little hole over here, and then you've got everybody who, you know, driving fancy cars and wearing all these fancy clothes, and you say, oh, they're important, and these people aren't. Now, most of us would probably say that that's probably true, but it's extremely uncomfortable to talk about. That's why James writes about it. It's uncomfortable to talk about. But there are times in the church that we do show favoritism towards certain people. And I hope that that's not the case, but sometimes we may. I remember we had a, a man come in when I was in high school to our church, uh, and he came in and sat down on the back row. I could smell him from over here, okay? And, and I'm not talking about food. I'm talking about like he had slept, and it was nasty. It was, he smelled terrible. And so we all sat there looking, and, of course, everybody on that pew got up and moved, the people in front of him got up and moved. And I sat there thinking, what, what was, what's, my, what's my responsibility here? You know, I was just a teenager. And I finally watched an older widow, a sister, go and take him an open songbook at the song that we were singing and placed a Bible on his lap. And she left. Now, looking back, I wish that I had went over there and sat next to him. But that would have been hard because he smelled and he was... And so there is favoritism often given to someone else. If we see someone pull up into the parking lot with a nice car and they're dressed very nice, we would, we would unfortunately, in many occasions, say, well, we'd like to get to know that person. We want to talk to them. Come on in. Here's a bulletin. But if somebody comes in that smells and looks a different part, we are quick to dismiss. Uh, I've known preachers to do this. Don't worry, I won't do it. But I've known preachers to dress up like a homeless person and sit in front of their church building. Several that have done this. In fact, I was at a youth event where the, the speaker did this. He got in the dumpster 
and the kids were throwing away their garbage that morning for breakfast. He was taking some of the bread and eating the bread. And I hope that it was in his pocket or something, but he, he was eating, and they were bringing, so the kids were bringing him food. They helped him get out of the dumpster, and he sat down on the ground. And when it came time for the speaker, our speaker didn't arrive. And this homeless guy comes in the back, and he's our speaker for the day. And he's like, you know, some of you were nice to me. Some of you called me names. There was one that came over and kicked the side of the dumpster a couple of times. And so he used that as a learning thing. I would never do that. I, not that I don't think that would be a great illustration, but it kind of takes, a, I think it's a distracting thing. But it did work for the youth. And so we need to be careful that we don't look down upon someone else or look more highly at someone else based on the way they dress or things like that. And that's one of the issues they dealt with in the church here. I think you could preach a whole series just on a few of the verses in chapter 1. You know, he says the idea of being swift to hear, you know, um, slow to speak, slow to wrath, the idea of God being the giver of great gifts, all great gifts come from above. All those thoughts are here in this first chapter. They endure the word, not just to hear only. Um, those verses are sermons. Those are, those are and he, he just packs all this big punch in the first chapter. And that's one of the reasons why I love it. And he's so practical. Sometimes when you read people or you listen to people, I've had preachers that I loved and admired, but they talk up here, you know, and I, I have to kind of dissect it and think about it and Sometimes I have to Google what the word was. I have done that in the pew before when I've heard preachers. I said, what is that word? And, um, and so he, he wants to make sure that the church is doing God's will, not just hearing it, not just reading it, but putting it into practice. Because Christianity is not just a religion of the mind. Christianity is a religion of the body. We are supposed to go into all the world. We're supposed to be the hands and the feet. We're supposed to be listening and teaching and preaching and ministering. We're the hands of God. And so he's trying to say, you know, church, we got to be, we've got to be practical. There's some things that we have to change, but he's also saying, let's get to work. Let's get to work. And hopefully when a church, when we as a congregation read this or as a Christian read this, we go, all right, let's get to it. Let's, let's get to work. Yeah, Hunter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Right, and, and so he'll talk about it in this chapter, well, specifically in the next two chapters, he'll deal with racism, he'll deal with prejudice, uh, basically having the eyes and the mind of Jesus. How would Jesus look at this person? How would Jesus treat this person? person? Specifically, how would Jesus speak to this person, uh, talking about the tongue? But there's another little section here that really grabs me, and that's 12 through, specifically 12 through 16, because he talks about, you know, blessed is those that endure temptation. But then he says, now I want you to watch it now. You don't ever say when you're tempted, you're tempted of God. Don't you ever say that. You are not tempted by God. In fact, he gives a five-step process of how we get into sin. It starts with paying attention to something we shouldn't. 
Then it is it's the seduction of it. Then it is making a decision to do it where the transgression takes place. And then finally, the condemnation. Look, he says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lusts and enticed. Then when the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. So don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. You are the, we, when we say, well, how, how come did you get into this difficult situation? Well, we want to be like Adam. You know, Adam blames Eve. He's not man enough to step up and say, God, I made a huge mistake, and I'm sorry. I wasn't paying attention. I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do. You gave me one law. No, he says, God, it was that woman you gave me. And Eve says, well, it wasn't me, Lord. It was the snake that you put in the garden. And so this, this passing of the buck, this idea of passing it on to someone else, and James is saying, you've got to own up when you sin. You are the reason why you fall into sin. If somebody can take you somewhere, somebody can suggest something to you, but sin is when your own heart has been deceived and you give in to the temptation. So James might agree with Paul. If you see temptation, you run away from it as fast as you can. I love teaching that lesson to our young people. Is if you are in any situation, if you are in a, at a place where something is going on that is wrong, get out as fast as as humanly possible. I mean, they ought to say Flash was at that party. You know, just moving on through the crowd as fast as you can. Lightning bolts from your shoes. Call somebody. Get out as fast as you can. Don't stay around sin. Uh, it will influence you, and it will influence other people around you because if you're there and they say, well, that, he's a good Christian, she's a good Christian, well, she's there and she's doing it, well, then I guess it's okay. So it, it brings damage to the cause of Christ. So he says, get Away. And when you are tempted, don't blame God. Don't you dare blame God. It's not his fault. You made that decision. You decided to sin. And again, this is tough language. Um, we're just a few verses in, and he's saying, he's, he, this is kind of like the phone call that we all need sometimes in the morning, you know, when you, I don't hit the snooze alarm. I can't, I can't, I, we were talking to, I think Christy was talking about, or maybe it was Sandy this week. I said, I can't, I'm 45 years old, and I don't think I've ever hit the snooze alarm in my life. If I have maybe one time, when the alarm goes off, I'm up. I'm up. I don't need it to bark at me. I don't want to be jolted awake every three minutes for 20 minutes. I don't need that. I don't need to be awake every five minutes with the alarm going off again and again and again. I'm ready to get up and go. And so we, we get up in the morning, and maybe we need that sermon, you know, that, that, that powerful message, get up and get to work. James is that message to a church that is struggling, to a church that is dying, to a church that's not active, James is what we need to preach. I mean, it is, go get them. You know, get up, get out there and get, get something to do. You know, go work. It's a great, great message. John will talk about testing the spirits, making sure that we are aware that when something good is given, good gifts come from God. If it looks like it is something that's not good, it did not come from the Lord. His, his uh, blessing, his promise is to watch out for, to take care of his children. Now, that doesn't mean that he's going to keep us away from all temptation. He will allow us to do whatever we want. It's called free will. And it's just like it happens when you look down at your child and you say, don't touch that. I said, don't touch that. I said, don't do it. I had one. It was, we were doing a VBS. And it, my friends from North Alabama still bring this up because it was funny. But he was, we were putting together a fire pit on the stage for a vacation Bible school. Have I told this story before? Put a big rock pit up on the stage. We weren't going to put fire in it, but we had a fan that was blowing yellow and red and orange streamers. So we put it together, 
And one of, the, one of my boys kept trying to pick up the rocks. And I said, stop picking up the rocks. Don't touch the rocks. If you touch the rock again, I'm going to have to spank you. Touching the rock. I said, I'm going to spank you. Don't touch the rock. I said, you're going to learn your lesson. And so I turned my back. <laughs> and sure enough, he lifts one. Well, he realizes how heavy they are. Well, he drops it under his hand and bruised these two fingers. I mean, huge blood blister starts popping up. And we had an older man there. He just walked over with his pocket knife. I mean, didn't even think. We got blood all over the stage. And uh, I walk over to him, and it's not my finest moment as a father. And I just looked at him, and I said, did you learn your lesson? So I, I wish that I had gotten a Band-Aid or something. But I, I told him, I said, did you learn your lesson? I told you, and I told you, and I told you. God repeatedly tells us how to stay out of trouble, how to stop from getting, you know, getting into trouble and being hurt. His word is the guide, and it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our pathway. So James is saying, take a hold of the good gifts God gives you. Use that wisdom. Ask God for it and then use it, and you won't find yourself into these problems he's going to deal with in the next three chapters. And he says in verse 27, and if you don't have this highlight in your Bible, it's a good one. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted for the world. And before we divided it up into books and chapters and verses, it connects perfectly to chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. You, you don't hold partiality towards some people and neglect the orphans and widows. He says, For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, you know, he's got a Rolex on, he's wearing an Armani suit, he drove up in a Cadillac, and there should also come in one in poor clothes, filthy clothes, hobo, homeless guy, dragging it off the street, been sleeping in a dumpster for two weeks. And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you, you sit over here in this good place. And say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. You see the disdain for those that are in poverty? He says, have you not shown partiality among yourselves? And become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Again, that's a sign of the Beatitudes of Jesus. He's just reintroducing us to Jesus' thoughts. But verse 6, you've dishonored the poor man. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you're called? Don't they rebuke people in the name of Christ? Don't they say hateful things about you? Aren't they the one that's taking your money and keeping you in the courts and not giving you a fair price in the market? Aren't you? He's giving the list we could add to it. Then why on earth would you show more attention to someone who is rich than to someone who is poor? Because we're showing favoritism. It says in verse 8, um, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You'll do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of sin. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and do as those who'll be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown, shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He says, choose something other than disdain, other than prejudice, other than partiality. Deal people 
deal with people with equality, with equality. Now, I, I, I want to pause here for just a second and say, I heard a, somebody teach a lesson on this one time and said, this is the reason why we shouldn't have the tradition of dressing nice in church. I heard it said from the pulpit. He says, you know, this is, just shows us that God would prefer for us not to dress so nice. We need to let go of the ties and the suits and all that. That's not what James is saying at all. James isn't saying you'd be better off if you dress like a homeless person. That's not what James is saying. James's point is that when people come in that are new, people that are coming into the congregation that we do not know, we should not show favoritism at all to any of those individuals, but love them all equally, especially if they're lost. There's not, I can tell you, we're going to go knock doors in a few weeks. We're going to knock doors, try to hit every house here in Somerdale, and a little bit in Foley, and a little bit in Robertsdale, and I can guarantee you that there are some neighborhoods that we can go and knock on, and we won't have any success, because those people don't need a thing. They don't want a thing. They don't want you in their yard. They don't want you on their sidewalk. Don't defile me by putting something on the door handle. But there are other places that we can go. And I could take you to places where people would be eager to hear a gospel message. Last week, or a couple weeks ago, we were in Florence, and um, there used to be a project area there next to um, the crossing of uh, Helton Drive and Florence Boulevard. And a few years ago, they tore it down and they put in a new road. And I was telling somebody, I said, I door knocked that neighborhood one Saturday. I got there real early, like 8 o'clock. They were doing the closing closet in the back of the uh, school bus. It was one of those where you walk on the bus, you get to close and walk out the front. And so we were knocking doors. We knocked 40 doors that Saturday. 20 people were home. 20 weren't. They just got a little bag. Now, of those 20 people that we door knocked, uh, or that we actually spoke to someone, 10 of them had prayer requests or something, and we had like four Bible studies out of just the those 10 that actually engaged in conversation with us. And it was the most successful day I ever had door knocking. And you will see that sometimes with people that are going through poverty. They are looking for help. They are needing some help. So before we just dismiss someone and say, they don't need, I don't, I don't want to waste my time. James says that's exactly who you need to spend time with. Because when you show mercy, mercy is shown to you. And if you think you don't need mercy, you won't be merciful. So remind yourself of the good gifts that God has given, going back to chapter 1. And so this is a great thought about showing love. And then he dives right into the next section, which is probably the most famous of James's letter, is when he talks about uh, recognizing that we need to do good works. Uh, he says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can faith save him? Now, we have some people that believe faith can save you. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I'm going to say a little prayer, and I'm saved. James says that's not going to save you. Faith alone does not save. This is the reason why some like Martin Luther and a handful of individuals that are faith only did not want James and Romans in the Bible because they struggle with this. Well, just because I struggle with it doesn't mean it doesn't belong in the Bible. It belongs there. The problem is I may not want to apply it. The application is simple. You can tell people you're a Christian. You can believe that you're a Christian. But if you don't do the things that Christ would do, you shouldn't call yourself by the name Christian. So he says, these are some things you need to do. You need to have faith and works. Faith alone cannot save. So then he says, if you see that brother or sister who's naked and destitute daily food, that homeless person you dismissed earlier, but you don't give them the things that are needed for the body, what does it profit? He says, don't tell them to part in peace. Don't tell them to be warm and filled. He says also, he says, faith without works is dead, verse 17. And then he says, 
you know, if I see someone, someone says, you have faith and I have works, then he says, show me your faith. Show me your faith without your works. Show me how you do that. Tell me how you can say, I'm a faithful Christian, but I don't work for God. Just show me, because he says, I can't, you can't do that. He says, well, you, you know, you say you believe, verse 19. You believe that there is one God. Well, you do well. Good job. Congratulations. Even the demons believe and tremble. So if you say faith alone saves, how come hell was created for the devil and his angels? Because they have faith. They're still going to hell, but they have faith. They know that there's a God. So how does faith save? Faith is a motivating factor. Faith comes from hearing the word of God. Being a faithful Christian is not just hearing the word, but doing it, doing the work of the Lord. So it is a, a lifelong daily sacrifice as a child of God. And, and James, again, he tells how to do this. He talks about Abraham. He talks about Abraham was called a friend of God. He was a great man of faith. Uh, he also talks about Rahab, justified by her works. And he says, then he closes out that little section by saying, as the body without the spirit is dead, just like a dead corpse, so is faith without works. Rahab was saved because of her works. She hid the spies. She snuck the spies out. She laid out the scarlet thread from the window so they could find her. And because of that, her faith saved her and her family. And that faith, by the way, also led her into Jesus' family tree. So when we see these characters, he's going to talk about Elijah too in a minute. Faith is active. Abraham was told, get up and go out of your country. Get out of here. And we're told to go into all the world and teach the gospel. Uh, Christianity is an active religion. Do you know why Buddhism is the most popular religion in America right now? Why people, Everybody's talking about Buddhism and doing yoga and stuff like that. You know why, you know why that's the most popular right now to some people? Because you don't have to do a single thing. You can sit on a mat, stretch a few times, offer up a few prayers if you want, burn some incense, which, you know, like a candle in the house. And that's religion. That's your that's your essence. It's your divine aura. You're, you're a child of the, of the creator. Just walk around in a nice clean shirt and talk about loving people. And that's all you need to do. And that's, that's what people want to do. A lot of religious people want to do today. But Buddhism is so popular among people. The real essence of Christianity is conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. It's not like, you know, they're, they're, we don't have any kids in here, but if we have some watching online, I apologize if I'm about to ruin some child's life. But if I dress up like Santa Claus a couple times a year, and I, and I put on a suit, and I put on the cape, and I put on the mask, and I may, I may even grow a beard out, and I put that on for a few times, does that make me that individual does that make me Santa Claus? I, I want to play the part. I want to pretend to be. I want to be able to hand toys to kids and smile and, and ho, 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 you know. But I'm telling you, there's a lot of people that claim to be Christians, and they're no different than the mall Santa Claus. You put on the part, you come into church, you smile, you sing the songs, you open your Bible, you may even highlight a couple things, and you go home and you live the exact opposite kind of life. Every time in Hebrews 11, it says by faith, and it mentions the individual, there's some action word, verb afterwards, that says what they did to show their faith. Uh, we show our faith by action. 
Christianity is a daily choice, a daily walk. Anybody can die with Christ. That's the easy part. Baptism is the easiest thing you'll ever do. I mean, it is. It's just come and get on, get on the suit, walk back in there and say, I want to be a, I want a clean slate. I want to start over. Who doesn't want that? We all want that. We want to, let's start over fresh. Okay. Baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit for the remission of your sins. And you come out and your sin, your sin is gone. You're clean. But daily living is the harder part. We're called not just to die with Christ, but we're supposed to raise with Christ and walk with Christ every day. That's the more difficult part. Uh, and, and it's one reason why a lot of people fall away is because they just simply do not. And, and then one thing is we, we don't talk a lot about the things we're supposed to do. We, we don't talk about all the things that we need to be doing. And, and we need to be praying every day when we get up in the morning, God, open a door for me to tell you to talk to somebody about Jesus. Open a door for me today to be able to share my faith. Open a door for me today to invite somebody to Bible class. Open a door for me to talk to somebody about a Christian that goes to our church that we have as a mutual friend. Every day, God, open a door. Because if we pray for it and we start looking for it, we'll see it when it's there. But if we're just expecting to stumble into something, uh, that's, that's just not going to happen very often. So we have to get up with the anticipation. I remember when I was a teenager, I used this, we did this a lot as it was we were young, but we had, Missouri has different laws when it comes to deer season. Y'all have no idea unless you, you got one week and that's it. And you get one tag and that's it. One tag. And so it's a buck only. And you get to the camp, we would go set up camp, we would practice, we would get our guns sided in, we'd set up the cabins, we'd set up the, the, the we'd get the hot chocolate packets ready to go in the hot warmers and the stay, all the, put all the food and the drinks and stuff and the little campers and set up all the firewood for one week, for one week. And we worked so hard for that one week and we were lucky if we got that one deer that we were allowed to have. It, if you want to serve God... You can't prepare for it one week or one year or just one part of your life. You have to constantly stay prepared and ready. Uh, if I got to hunt every morning, that would be great. I'd love to just go out on my back porch and hunt. Some of you may do that. I don't know. But I'm saying that as we begin to put on the armor of God and fight as a soldier for God, it's not a one-week thing. It's not a one-day thing. It's an every day. I'm going to put on the armor of God, and I'm going to go out into battle. And... Uh, it's a daily choice. Chapter 3 is extremely meaty. This is about the idea of controlling our tongue. I, I may have mentioned I had a sermon one time I did on the tongue. When I was a younger preacher, I did a lot of things to, you know, to grab attention, so I uh, thought it would be neat to put up flyers all over the church building <clears throat> that said, Ray Reynolds is full of hot air. <clears throat> now, what I did was I put a, a balloon, hot air balloon, and the guy in the hot air balloon, I cut my face out of the picture and put my face inside the balloon. And I put Ray Reynolds full of hot air. And I posted them everywhere, in the bathrooms, they were in songbooks. I was probably about 24 or 5 years old. And uh, one of the elders came to me between Bible class and worship. He said, is it your birthday or something? And I said, no. And he goes, did you see this? And I go, thank you for showing me that. I really appreciate that. And he was the only one. So I got up to preach, I sabotaged the PowerPoint so that every 30 seconds that picture would fly up. And I knew it was going to be on the screen, so I would look at their laughing, I could see the light of the screen in the windows, and I would always turn after it went off. And it happened about three times. Finally I said, I said, what is going on? And this time it came up while I was looking at it. And I said, did y'all see this? Yeah. 
How many of you have seen this today? How many of you have seen this? Every hand. I said, did you? I, and I pulled one out of my book. I said, Randy Eccles, one of our elders, just gave this to me. He said it was in the bathroom. Did y'all see these in the bathroom? Yeah, we did. Any of you having your psalm book? See it in some bulletins? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you show it to somebody else? Yeah, sure did. You know, everybody's, yeah. I was showing it to everybody. It's so funny. I said, why didn't you tell me about it? Why didn't you come to me and say something was being said? The whole church now knows this gossip. Now, yes, I put it out there, so it's my fault. But I'm saying that as a Christian, our goal should not to be participating in gossip, to guard our tongue, to practice Matthew 18 if somebody offends us. And so he makes it very clear that the tongue is the hardest thing to control. He talks about bits in the horse's mouths in verse 3. He talks about ships with their rudder in verse 4. He talks about the, the fire that kindles and makes the giant you know, wildfire in verse 5. All of these things, he says, it brings uh, iniquity. It defiles you. Uh, and he says, every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed. But we still can't tame the tongue. Go down to Orlando. Go to SeaWorld. And they'll go out there and blow a little whistle. And a giant killer whale will come over and do three flips and jump through a hoop. Okay? You can go to any zoo. And they'll have all kinds of... They'll have, you can go to, the, go to the circus. And they got elephants standing up on one foot and dressed like clowns. James says, we can tame any creature on the earth. And the one thing we can't tame is that little tiny piece of muscle between our teeth. That's the only thing. And he says, if you can learn how to bridle that, you've got it made. Uh, and then he talks about pride in chapter 4. You know, resist the proud. Uh, God gives grace to the humble. He talks about the differences between people that are humble and people that are worldly. I love that section, 7 through 10, where he says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. He'll push back against the darkness, push back against Satan. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you, and cleanse your hands, he says, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The idea is giving up the things that God doesn't want me to have, and then being humble in his sight, verse 10. He says, don't speak evil of your brothers and sisters, verse 11. Don't, don't speak evil of another. He says, who, who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. You put yourself up as a judge on the judgment seat, and only God deserves that seat. He also talks about people who... Uh, make promises but don't keep them. People who make a vow. He talks about people who are boasting, well, I'm going to do this tomorrow and I'm going to do that tomorrow. And he, he warns us that we may not have that day. And then in verse uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 5, and a little bit further, he talks about that gold and silver again. People that are all dressed up nice and so forth. He says those riches will corrupt. Their garments are going to get moth-eaten. So invest in things that will produce faith in other people. And then he ends the book with talking about if you're suffering, pray, verse 13. If you're cheerful, sing something. Sing, sing. If someone among you is sick, he says, let him call for the elders of the church and pray over him. Uh, and he says, the prayer of faith will save the sick. And then verse 16, we mentioned in our invitation, to confess trespasses to one another, pray for one another that we may be healed in the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then you got that prayer of Elijah Praying for rain, or praying for it not to rain, and then praying for rain and it happens. And then these last few verses, look at 19 and 20. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth 
as someone turns him back. Now, how can you do that with only faith? You see, this is faith in action. If you know a brother, if you know a sister that has walked away from the faith, and you go and you snatch them out of the fire and you bring them back to God, let me tell you something. Verse 20, let him or her know, the one who does that, that he who turns a sinner from his error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And that's one of those where, you ever heard a speaker and they just slam the book, you know, or drop the mic? That's, that's James. I'll tell you what, folks. Faith without works is dead. We've got some work to do. There are some souls that are lost. Let's get out there and get them. Let's bring them back in and know that when you do that, you're keeping them from, the, from hell. You're giving them opportunity for a second chance. You're saving them from eternal death. And you're covering a multitude of sins. You're keeping them away from evil. And that's how he ends the book. Slams it shut. There it is. It is all about action. James is about getting up and getting to work. And that's what the church needs to do. We all need to do that. Get up, get to work. What can I do tomorrow? Lead me to some soul today. I'll say this too before I forget. Uh, we don't know. We don't know what we don't know. But I have to wonder, because Galatians was probably written pretty early. James was written pretty early. Paul says, Galatians 6, 1 and 2, to restore them in a spirit of gentleness right? Bear one another's burdens. Do we have an example in Galatians of where Paul did that? Yes, we do. We go back and read chapter 2. Paul had to rebuke the man who wrote this book, James. And he had to rebuke Barnabas because they were showing favoritism. And James repented, and Peter repented, and now James comes back and writes a book about how that's so dangerous to show favoritism. It's so dangerous to show partiality. This may be James's opportunity to tell the church, I even acted in a way that I'm ashamed. You don't ever do that. And maybe the reference in these two verses about somebody coming and restoring him in a spirit of gentleness is a reference to the Apostle Paul who did that very thing to him in Galatia. Maybe, maybe not. I just think it's, it, could, it could be a coincidence Usually, if it's in the Bible, it's not a coincidence. But nevertheless, James had to learn this lesson, and Peter's the one who, or Paul's the one who taught it to him. And Paul speaks these same words. All right, let's go get to work. Thank you for tuning in to the Ray Reynolds Wrap Podcast, and specifically this study of New Testament books. If you have a specific Bible question that relates to the material we just covered, please feel free to email me that at rayreynoldswrap at gmail.com. We want to encourage you to tune into every broadcast, follow us on social media, and get regular updates on the content. Follow, subscribe, share, and set your notifications so you don't miss any broadcasts or blogs that are posted. Check out the website for free books and Bible study materials at rayreynoldswrap.com. Hope you have a wonderful day, and may the Lord bless you as you seek to maintain an authentic life in Christ Jesus. To help you in your study of the Bible, we want to send you this Bible correspondence course. This course is non-denominational. It's based on the Bible. It's conducted by mail, and it's free. To receive this course, write to Getting to Know Your Bible, P.O. Box 314, Summerdale, Alabama, 36580, or call toll-free 1-877-711-5214.